Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Philip Forrest-Smith. Philip is the Managing Director of FSW Design, a product design and development company based in Nottingham. Philip, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme today. Yeah, it's nice to meet you, Scott. Likewise, Philip, pleasure having you join us. Um, The purpose of this discussion is, of course, to establish your take on leadership. So if we dive straight in by taking that word leader aside initially and exploring that in a bit more depth, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you. What ought a leader be in your eyes? Um, I think it can mean many things, really. But personally, I don't see it as, um, you know, a power figure necessarily. I see it as somebody that... um, you know, gives guidance um, in a role and tries to support people. I mean, at FSW Design, we very have a very sort of supportive environment, and um, you know that's that's how we that's how we work. I think in terms of the work we do, we, we're a design consultancy and we're trying to do creative work. And um, so, I think the leadership roles there are probably more more guidance based. We I certainly don't see it as a a thing where I need to be a strong, you know sort of alpha male leader I think it's purely a, a you know a, a guidance role that's how, that's how I see it I can certainly see where you're coming from from that point of view Philip so you'd say then that your own sort of leadership style is a, a little bit more kind of inclusive more sort of looking to give everybody that kind of voice as opposed to sort of being the dominant one running everything yeah no I think so I think certainly that's that's the best way that things work um, for the kind of work that we do I mean there is an aspect to it where um, I think you need to set an example of what the expectation is. So one of the things that um, we certainly do here is that I, I still try and get um, actively involved in the design work that we're doing. I still try and um, become involved and actually do design work myself. And I think you know, that's not always diff- easy because of all the different roles, all the things I'm trying to do within my role. But I think it, it sets an example. And I think it's also very good in terms of... Um, the employees recognising that I understand what they're trying to do. It's not like I'm asking them to do things which I've not got experience of myself. So, yeah, it's very certainly a very collaborative environment and we try and create a very supportive environment here. Showing a lot of humility as well, just showing that you're on that sort of equal footing. And considering, of course, that um, we're going through one of the most testing times for uh, business that have ever seen has ever been seen in history, let alone um, in our times, so the COVID nineteen situation, of course. Um, just how has it been as a business navigating um, this pandemic as a collective? I can imagine that the challenges have been sort of quite tremendous for you as well. Um, I think it's obviously been challenging, and I think it's been. You know, it's been challenging for everyone. It's not something that anybody expected or, you know, I think if they're being honest about had any any sort of strategies or plans for. But um, in terms of how it's affected our business, I think we've been in, um, you know, quite a lucky position in the, the nature of the work we're doing. It's possible to, to continue. I know for, you know, other sectors where, um, you know, it's, it, it doesn't work that way. It's been far worse. But from our point of view, you know, there are adjustments in terms of, um, people having to start working at home and, you know, that aspect of things and getting the IT up to standard for that to work. But it, it did allow us to to continue to, to be productive during the, the COVID period. And, and we didn't, you know, need to, 
and furlough any of the employees. We we made stringent efforts just to try and continue the, the business. And with regards to sort of the mental health and well-being of everybody at the business as well, how has that been holding up during this time? Because people do react to different things differently, don't they? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think everybody was shocked by it. And I think, obviously, you've got to be aware of, you know, the, the um, impact that may have on people. But we, you know, I think, as I said, it's a collaborative. We're, we're a relatively small design team. And so, um, you know, there's good personal relationships with everybody. I'm not in a situation where, um, you know, the employees are very distant from me. And we did, because of the nature of the work, you know, we, we were talking very regularly on, um, you know, Zoom or Teams or whatever to, to keep in contact. So, um, you know, we did have sort of managed to maintain a, a sort of level of support in terms of the work that was being carried out. And I think also, you know, I recognised, you know, my plan overall was really to to keep things running. I mean, I think there was an impact. If I look at it, there's certainly been an impact in terms of the productivity during that period while everybody was out of the office and while we adjusted to different ways of working. But, you know, I think you've got to recognize that and you've got to target the, um, you know, what you're trying to achieve. And I think the major thing during that period is just to, to get to maintain some stability and keep the business functioning. And do you think that over the next few years, the office environment will be back fully in vogue in the business world or will more and more people, do you think, be working from home on a personal basis given that we're now reflecting on our working practices during this time? I think it has made people reflect on working practices and I think it has highlighted that there's lots of meetings which are probably unnecessary. I mean, I've had many meetings where I've had you know many hours of travelling for a one hour or two hour meeting and then you know most of the day is travel and I think... So there's lots of situations when personally I think I would be looking to use, um, you know, Zoom or Teams or those kind of um, applications to, to do more meetings rather than immediately tra- immediately travel. But equally, you know, there needs to be a balance with that and you do need to, within business, you do need to be customer facing. You've, you've got to, you know, have relationships. And, you know, I think one of the things obviously about working remotely and, and con- being contacted through those kind of applications is that you don't quite get the same level of, of relationship or it's more difficult. The social interaction, I think, is much harder in using that kind of technology. And I think as humans as well, we are social creatures and that sort of social interaction side of the workplace is something that we kind of took for granted prior to the pandemic, didn't we? So there will always be a place for that going forward, particularly with regard to that sort of mental health side of things, because a lot of people during this period have been suffering in that sense, purely due to the social isolation aspect. Yes, for sure. Yeah, I think that's the case, particularly with elderly people or people that are shielding. So, you know, I think that that, that is an, an important factor. And considering that it can be quite hectic in the business world at the best of times on that sort of mental health side of things um, again, and especially now when there's sort of so much going on, you're having to sort of keep in touch with people, provide reassurance where it's needed. Just how easy do you find it to actually sort of switch off and look after your own mental health when you need to? Um, I mean, one of the things I did, you know, I continued, um, you know, I think it's important to separate work. I think one of the dangers is that you don't separate work from home. Like mm. that's that's the danger. And I think that's the, certainly through talking to other people, that's probably one of the biggest problems. And that you, I think, you know, it's very important to have structure in your day. And what I think you're finding is that particularly people with families, that they are, 
you know, trying to look after the children during the day and then trying to catch up with work at night. And so the whole thing becomes, you know, just gets squashed together, really. From my point of view, you know, I try to avoid that. So I try and separate work from home life and also try and exercise a lot. So I do, um, you know, I've always done a lot of exercise. I played a lot of football before the pandemic that obviously couldn't continue. So I've been doing a lot of cycling like other people have and running and things just to 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 try and get the balance. And I think that's that's certainly a you know a, a huge benefit really. And reflecting on sort of that pandemic experience thus far that you've had, is there anything that you would say that this sort of crisis management period has taught you? Um it's been interesting. I mean, majorly, I think that from our point of view, the major one is that we're a bit different in terms of we're trying to do design work. So, um, you know, it's slightly different from other industries in terms of the collaboration that's required. You know, a lot of the time you're trying to generate ideas and um, there's a creative aspect to it. So what we did really was we, to try and make it work, you know, when we're working remotely, we used um software for example file sharing software and things that allowed us to to work in that way so we use one piece of software where it allows us to, to put the designer sketches and images and things on one almost um board scenario so that you can see and you can put notes and things on it so that everybody's able to work in a collaborative way so i think it highlighted for me um you know how important that aspect is in terms of what the way we have to work um, and, you know, I guess it's, it's, it's highlighted strategies that I can use if we are working remotely or we have that requirement to try and continue that creative process. And thinking about now what the future might bring just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, over the next sort of 12 to 18 months as we adjust to this new normal that everybody's talking about, Philip, what do you think is next for yourself and for FSW and what do you hope to achieve? Um, I think it's interesting. One of the things that, to be really honest with you, that surprised me during this period is that I, I was concerned. It's everybody's obviously concerned about the economic impact of this, and you know, that's something that I've given a lot of thought to. Certainly, the, the last major crisis we went through in two thousand and eight that did have an impact on us as a business because what we found then was that development stopped, people cut development budgets, and that was an impact on us then. Um, this time's been different. I think because people have seen it as a short-term thing potentially and everybody's been talking about this economy returning in this sort of V fashion, um, you know, we've actually seen a lot of inquiries during this period, which has been a bit bizarre to be honest. But So I'm fairly optimistic. I, you know, I think it's important to be an optimist. Um, for us, you know, we can potentially see growth coming out of this. We've, you know, we've got... Um, a lot of inquiries. We've got a lot of strength in our business based on customer retention, and you know we 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 try and work that way so that we give customers um, you know a great deal of support um, as a business, and in that way we retain the customers. And as we grow, you know we we maintain those. So I think if going forward, I'm optimistic that we will see steady growth as an economy in, in total. I don't know. I don't think anybody really knows what's going to happen. And um, you know what the future holds there, but at the moment, I don't. I'm not unduly worried for us as a business. I don't. I don't see any huge pitfalls at the moment, and you know, I'm. I'm, I'm trying to stay optimistic. 
Let's hope that there will certainly be some good news on the uh, horizon, Philip, for sure. And I think it would actually be fantastic in future to catch up and have you back on the show just to see how things are getting on in a few months' time. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, I'm more than happy to do that. I think it'd be fantastic, uh, both for myself as host and from a listener's perspective too, Philip, because it's been a real pleasure and also really insightful experience having you join us to talk about your experience of the COVID-19 situation and your views on leadership today. And until hopefully we do speak again, do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on, because we're still not quite sure the way that the pandemic is going to go. No, that's great. But uh, thanks, uh, thanks for the opportunity to speak to you. That was Philip Forrest-Smith speaking, Managing Director of FSW Design. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords, current chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and of course a prominent former Labour MP and Secretary of State. In fact, he became, during his political career, one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, holding various senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, all despite being blind from birth. He was elevated to the House of Lords as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough in August 2015. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. All of that is, of course, coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery 
whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? 
Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary 
often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in 
you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Um, These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food, a lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of Thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged? I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by 
COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual, unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. 
Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has 
Mr. Keir Starmer set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. 
Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.